It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, hoping we find each and every one of you in good form this morning. John Paul's taking your calls at 1850-333-103. You can text your WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. Going through the papers this morning, some really lonesome and sad photographs of deer at the National Park in Killarney um, following those devastating fires of the weekend. And we will focus and talk about the more on the programme today but it seems hundreds of deer have lost their feeding grounds as a result of the wildfires and the Irish Deer Commission they said that the displacement is set to bring the deer into conflict with motorists and farmers but they are at this stage warning against calls for a severe cull of the deer but I suppose it is a word of warning to motorists and farmers driving around the Killarney National Park area to please be careful because there's going to be a huge displacement of deers over the coming weeks and months, the cause of the blaze, which destroyed up to 30, 000, sorry, up to 3,000 hectares. They reckon about half of the National Park has been destroyed. It's the heath in the mountain, still under investigation. Gardaí say they're keeping an open mind as to the start and cause of the fire. They have issued an appeal for information and a guard, the inspector, has been assigned to lead the investigation. But both the red and the Sika deer, they have now lost a vast feeding ground as a result of the fires in the National Park. The basic requirements for deer, what do deer look for? They look for food, shelter and they also look for peace and quiet. All of that has been taken away according to the Irish Deer Commission. Hundreds of deer also may be pregnant. They obviously have all been affected. Foxes were seen running from burned grounds and the homes of nesting birds have been destroyed. The deer it seems were fortunate in one way that if it had been this fire had happened a few weeks later their young would have been hidden in the vegetation as normally it seems female the females give birth then they hide the newborn in the vegetation while they're uh, feeding and obviously if a severe fire had happened that would have resulted in very high mortality levels of the young deer. The habitat of the cuckoo eggs gone, marsh and heathland nests have all been largely destroyed and it seems that the cuckoo had only arrived in Killarney last week and people are talking about hearing and seeing uh, the cuckoo and then we had this devastating fire. As I say we will talk about it later 
on in the programme and try to uh, t- try to work out and try and talk around how do we stop these fires from happening because it does seem like that they are becoming an annual event and already a text in from Liz in Kinsale to say I've been wondering are these gorse fires have they started as part of some disgusting internet craze uh, Liz said I read in Wales for example that they're fighting suspected deliberate gorse fires and all of them seem to start late at night could, be, could that be something that's going on here we've no way of uh, knowing but it's just you would like to think that it was just an accident that something happened I would hate to think that somebody's deliberately going out and causing these gorse fires because of the absolute devastation that they cause as I say we will talk about them later on on the programme uh, today can I wish the best of luck to everybody in West Cork today who will be heading out to the vaccination centre in Bantry. Uh, the, the Bantry vaccination centre is opening today. This is the vaccinations for people aged between 65 and uh, 69. Today it's the West Cork vaccination centre and Mallow's vaccination centre officially gets up and running tomorrow. The West Cork vaccination centre, of course, they've got two. They're alternating between the Bantry Primary Care Centre and the Clonakilty GAA Club. And the vaccinations begin today in Bantry they'll be beginning in Clonakilty next Monday and in Mallow the vaccination centre is at the GAA club in Mallow and uh, vaccinations there begin tomorrow Thursday the 29th of uh, April so best of luck and this is for obviously all of the people who have registered through the hsc.ie or on the 1850 24 uh, and just Actually, talking of uh, vaccinations, I had an email in from a list, doesn't want her name called out, which is fine to say I'm diabetic. I was called for my jab on Thursday last, April 22nd, in the Skibbereen Medical Centre. Now, I was apprehensive and having gone through the whole system of being brought in, getting the jab, waiting in the waiting room, being sent on my way. It was fantastic from start to finish. So please, a big shout out to Dr O'Neill and all of the medical staff, to Teresa, the coordinator, and all of the clerical staff. I would just like to say well done to each and every one of them. I would recommend everyone to get registered. It will make a difference and it will help to solve a problem and it also means uh, it's the sign of brighter days ahead. Thank you for that and it's and it's lovely to recognise people who are really going above and beyond when it comes to uh, vaccinations. And actually I was looking, if I have it here, um, you know the way a lot of people are worried and nervous. I mean as this listener said, nervous, a bit apprehensive going in but listen, all of her fears allayed when, when she went in. And a lot of people then talk about the side effects when people get the vaccine and how they feel afterwards. Well there's a really interesting study that I came across that's it's out it's from the UK and of course the UK best place to look at when we're talking about after effects of vaccines because they vaccinated uh, so many people and it seems one in four people will experience some kind of a mild short-lived side effect after receiving either the Pfizer jab or the AstraZeneca jab headaches, fatigues tenderness, they're all the more common uh, symptoms most of those 
after after effects will peak within 24 hours of the vaccination and the side effects will last at most one to two days according to the study. The study has been published in the Lancelet Infectious Diseases. Now it compared both AstraZeneca and Pfizer uh, because they are the two vaccines that are being administered in the United Kingdom and it looked to investigate the prevalence of these mild side effects following the vaccine. The analysis then was carried out by researchers from King's College in London and they found fewer side effects in in the general population with both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine that was actually reported in the trials and that's interesting so they knew after the trials that there was going to be side effects but when they rolled it out to the general public less side effects than what they got with the people who took part in the trials. The data will should assure many people though that in the real world after effects of the vaccine usually very mild they're short lived especially in the over 50s and of course the over 50s are the ones most at risk from infection from COVID-19 and most at risk of becoming very unwell or God forbid even dying. The results also showed up to 70% protection after three weeks following a single dose and that's been seen and hailed as fantastic news. According to the research also the drop in infection at at least 21 days after the first dose for the Pfizer was at 69% and it was at 60% for AstraZeneca. Again really really high figures and that was after the first uh, dose and then they go through the various side effects they call them systemic effects and they're the ones uh, the ones like the headache the fatigue high temperature chills some people get a bit of diarrhea other people get a joint pain and then they look at the things what they call the local side effects and that's where the injection actually goes in where there might be pain or swelling and the data this is a big study because the data it looked at uh, 627,383 people who got the jab what they asked them to do was they asked them to download a special COVID symptoms study app and they got them then to self-report in the days after either if they had chills or headaches or if they had where the actual injection went in if they had pain there and they asked them to monitor and take a look and you know, fill in the data on the app every day for eight days. So it was a long study as well, but it was a huge, huge study. And it was both amongst people who received the Pfizer and people who received the AstraZeneca. And overall, the study found that about a quarter of people vaccinated said that they had some mild uh, side effects. As I say, chills, headache, feeling just a little bit unwell for the most 24 hours, 48 hours at the very most. Then about 66% of people said that they had some kind of pain where the injection went in or they might have had a bit of swelling or the arm might have felt a little bit funny but again within a day or two it was all uh, gone and the most common side effect was uh, a headache uh, followed by a high uh, temperature and the research found more side effects and this yeah the research found more side effects in those under the age of 55 and the more common side effects were in women under the age of 55. And for some reason, people over the age of 55, the older generation, seem to have less side effects. They can't work out why that is. But the younger the people are, the more common the side effects are. But again, that they're all very, very mild side effects. And again, it will be interesting to dig deeper into that. Why why are, why are the women suffering more of the mild? And as I say, they're all mild side effects. But just to make people aware of that, if you are heading in for your vaccine, you might have a day or two where you're feeling a little bit unwell. Or you could also be in the other cohort 
cohort of people who feel absolutely fine. Didn't even know that you got the jab. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your call. And the lovely text in from, I love when people take time out to say, I got particularly good service or I went somewhere and they were so nice and people went above the call of duty because we're great to complain, but it's always good to compliment as well. And the texter says, hi, Patricia, just want to talk a little bit about shops on your programme today. The most wonderful shop I've ever come across or that I ever regularly go into is Hennessy's Landis in Skibbereen. It is the cleanest shop you will find, dare I say, anywhere in West Cork. It is absolutely spotless and it's a joy to shop in. The staff are so nice and kind and good-mannered. It is a credit to the owner. I think it's nice to get credit for doing nice things. Thank you, Landis, and thank you, the owner. Says an unnamed Texter. So if anybody is in Landis in Skibbereen today, Hennessy's Landis in Skibbereen, you can tell them we were talking about them and compliment them on the shop being so clean. Joy to shop there and well done to each and every one of the staff. Thank you to whoever, te- whoever WhatsApp that in. Mary says, hi Patricia, yes I also saw the pictures of the deer in Killarney National Park, especially the one of them standing on the blackened hill looking lost. It would break your heart to see so many animals traumatised. After the fire I also saw some hen harrier nests with chicks burnt in the nests and remember the hen harrier are on the protected bird list and any numbers lost will be a danger to their survival a win indeed and it was only a few weeks ago we bird watch Ireland and remember that we did an interview where we spoke about the birds in this country that are on the endangered list and unfortunately more of our native birds more and more of them are going on to the red list of the endangered species and in a number of years we may not have those birds uh, in this country so we have to do everything that we can uh, to protect them so yes I agree devastating to see the loss to uh, wildlife. And then another listener is saying what will the water bring down from the burnt areas when and if there is really heavy rain? Surely the lakes will be destroyed as well. Well I mentioned that yesterday and they are, they don't know at this stage, I mean they're only assessing the impact from the fires but the lakes certainly have been mentioned because that's true there will be a runoff from those areas that were burned so it's a kind of a a wait and uh, see. Now we're going to be talking about toilets on the programme and lack of access to public toilets and the public toilets that are opened, the conditions that some of them are in because it was highlighted on the programme certainly after the weekend we had a flurry of calls on Monday about the condition of some public toilets. Well a listener says, hi Patricia, my friend and I escaped there on a few day trips to beautiful West Cork. I must say that the toilet facilities in Baltimore and Gugam Barra were so clean one could eat off the floor. Well done to whoever maintains them. I was hand them a gold medal. Uh, please don't read out my name but my advice to people is get out there and revise your knowledge of Cork County. It's amazing. Every town and village has its own identity and colour schemes. Some people are very courageous with the colours that they use. I have to admire them. Honestly, there's no place like West Cork, says this a texter. I am a major fan. It is a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And we also yesterday touched on uh, littering and we had a very lengthy email in from Stephen who sent us on photographs of a rubbish build-up at the entrance to Garrettstown. Well, that's prompted Jess uh, to message uh, to say, your emailer Stephen yesterday really has a point over the rubbish build-up over at Garrettstown Beach. A few years ago, the council set up a great incentive where large plastic bags were available at various posts along the beach. The idea was that they were encouraging folk 
pick up plastic as you're heading off for your walk along the beach. There was a real hit, especially for the kids. And I think if we're all involved, as it is all our responsibility, then more folk will respect this. It really feels as if there's no regard, especially for those who leave their dog poo bags astray. It really is yuck. I wonder what their back gardens look like. Having said that, my utmost respect to Michael. Now, I don't have a surname on Michael, but Michael, who works for the council and who relentlessly clears and cleans up all the junk out that way on a regular daily basis. He really is the garbage warrior. Well done, Michael. Fair play to him and all the best to you all. And that's from Jess in Cork City, who says, P.S. By the way, I'm not suggesting that you get children to go down on the beach picking up other people's dog poo. My point is, if there is a visible active attempt to clear up the plastic or other debris that's on the beach from visitors, surely that will instill just a minuscule of conscience in the perpetrators. Cheers, says uh, Jay. And the, and the point that Stephen was making yesterday, Jay, and you and um, Jess, and yours kind of ties in with it is if people leave rubbish behind, and in particular what Stephen was talking about, this entrance to Garrettstown Beach, there's kind of some signs up, including one telling you to clean up after your dog. And somebody obviously left a bag of rubbish there. And then someone else came along and said, oh, that's why you must leave your rubbish. And if people see rubbish left they kind of feel for some strange reason that it's okay to leave rubbish there so so they leave more there. And it's the very same if you go on to a very clean beach people would be uh, I, I think Jess is right people would be surely more unlikely to dump rubbish if an area is very clean or if you actually witness other people picking up rubbish surely something in your conscience will tell you don't dump rubbish look what those people are doing and I might encourage other people to do it as well so yeah I think it's a good suggestion and I have a vague recollection of the council doing that uh, Jess putting out the bags and encouraging people because if you put the bags and then you obviously need the bags and the council will come back and collect them but you've got to make it as easy as possible for folk to dump their rubbish by having places for them receptacles to put them in and the receptacles aren't there then we just need to encourage and start getting through to people you need to take your rubbish home with you John Paul taking your calls 1850 333 103 Cork today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance cmig.ie With so many people travelling to scenic spots and beaches last weekend especially now that the 5k travel limit has been lifted. The lack of clean public toilets has once again been highlighted right across the city and county. The issue was discussed at this week's meeting of Cork County Council and joining me Kinsale-based councillor uh, Kevin Murphy. Good morning to you Kevin. Morning Patricia, how are you? I'm very well thank you and welcome to to the programme. Let me start with your own town of Kinsale. The public toilets on Sunday caused a number of complaints uh, to the programme. Uh, Some were saying three of the four toilets were blocked. People were saying they were disgraced, they couldn't use them. Have have the issues at the toilets been addressed? Yeah, I did. I didn't. I didn't uh, hear anything like that until yesterday. And in actual fact, uh, I was a bit shocked to hear that because, in uh, the normal course of events, we have a very top-class uh, state-of-the-art treatment plant now, as such, and the feed into that is quite good as well. But obviously, there must have been some blockage along the line, and uh, that was a, a, that was advanced yesterday, as far as I know. And um, I didn't hear any uh, adverse feedback from that since. So okay. it, 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 that's unacceptable totally that there was blockage there. And of course but there was queues there there was queues as well and that I think was the big one people were saying we just don't have enough public toilets and is, is that widely accepted within the council? 
I think it is a natural fact, Ben, and, and I, I'd agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, no, we have unprecedented numbers coming into 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 the towns, and that they are very welcome because obviously there were people who were locked down for so often. They have to get out the fresh air, and they have to get out and enjoy themselves, and we have to accept that, and we have to make provision for that too. And uh, I actually brought that up now on on, uh, on Monday's meeting because I was. I was talking about something very different to block toilets at the same time. Um, I was talking in terms of the ordered coastal uh, or coastal areas, which we have numerous numbers all over the place, uh, were absolutely jointed on, on the weekend. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was it was really choked to the last inside in, in Gallatstown, inside in, in, in Castle Park, inside in Sandy Cove, and all the beaches around the locality were absolutely choked. But we don't have the facilities at all for that. And in, and in most cases, which is the ones I know around my own locality, have no sewage system and they have no toilet facilities at all. Um, no, we, our, our boundaries, uh, Patricia, changed in the last 12, the last uh, two years. We changed um, and some of our areas was reverted back into Carrigal Line from the Conceal Benton area. And we expected that the monies that we saved, if you like, on that transfer would be pumped into our area. But mm-hmm. in total, that the money travelled with the boundary. In other words, the monies that were there went back and didn't, uh, we, we, weren't, um, we weren't, if you like, um, the beneficiaries of that particular um, um, funding that was available for us. So that was a, a, a big, big minus for us as such. And, but uh, the, the, the fact that we're in level five and hospitality is closed, so you can't pop into a restaurant and say, well, I'll have my lunch or I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll go spend a penny. I'll, I'll use the loo while I'm here. That's really added to the problem and has really highlighted the fact that in our lovely scenic areas, especially our beaches, we need more public toilets. We do, certainly. And, and that's, that's a gimme. As far as I'm concerned here, um, I got a positive response back from um, our chief executive, uh, Tim Lucy, on Monday, saying that he's going to look in seriously into providing some port loose in that particular area. And I did ask him quite distinctly that, that uh, the funding should follow that. There's no point in talking about directing public toilets or, or, or port loose unless the funding is there for that. And we don't have the funding at the moment. So I'm hoping it's hope that it will be released fairly soon. And what would you suggest? Put in put in Portaloos for the summer months, even? Well, yeah, even that way. But I mean, we've that done all before in, in Rocky Bay, below in and in Robert's Cove for years and years, and uh, pretty expensive outfit by the same token. But they were well worth it because people had uh, toilets quite close to the beach, which is which is normal, and that should be happening. But like as I said before, um, sometimes that you do have an influx of people coming in there like that, and uh, into some of the beaches that we had the, over the last two weeks or three weeks, or I guess maybe, and places, the places wouldn't be able to accommodate port news anywhere. So I did ask him as well that he should, he should, in actual fact, negotiate with those place, areas where we have uh, no disposal of sewage. Um, and I asked him to negotiate with the people who have a sewage system next door to allow their system to take the uh, the port news. And um, I hope that law will be investigated uh, in the coming week, I hope. OK, because so, I'm assuming every councillor at the meeting had some story to tell if uh, about lack of public toilets, did they? They had. Yeah. They had. And yeah. I, I, did, I did, in actual fact, I did 
Um, really repeated over and over again. The fact of the matter is, we don't public toilets. There is a hygiene, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hygiene, there's a, there's a safety issue here as well. But it's a token because the kiddies that come out into the into the into the beach, they play along, and like they they don't have the wherewithal to 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 hold to hold themselves before they get the, before they can go to the loo as such. And really, that's it's a, it's a very serious health problem here in Southern Concept here. And I brought a loud and clear into into Tim Lucy the other day saying this is is not acceptable anymore. And we also heard from some people who said, you know, now that the 5K has been lifted, we've got this beautiful county we can travel around. Kinsale in particular was mentioned, love a trip to Kinsale, one woman said, but she said because uh, I was afraid that there wouldn't be any toilets available. People are nervous now about going out and thinking, how do I go on a a day trip if if I'm not going to have access to public toilets? Of course. Of course, I mean, what they're saying is quite true, but it's most unfair. But overall, due respect to, to everybody involved in this, um, Patricia, the, uh, and to all listeners as well, like the, the, the county council themselves can only put up toilets where they, they feel that they're feasible. In other words, that they'll have to be, they'll have to be in the normal course of events at, at, at major, major, uh, uh, you know, we say holiday period time now and, and, and out of those where the people, where the, the, the people traverse as such. So uh, we we can't put a tide in every crossroads because we also have a number of major outlets now at the moment where our boy um there would be the the, the fast food outlets now and, and, and those were coffee cups and those are, uh, coffees and teas and all those of it. And there are queues a mile long in some of those really mm-hmm. for 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 the and of course people need to go to the toilets there too. There are people then who I don't have go for for the best of their health and some people may have problems may have problems um with accessing toilets pretty quickly and frequently and the unfortunate part about it is that uh, as you pointed out some of the toilets have been blocked and some of the toilets have not been accessible. And our can, toilets with no toilet paper or no soap well, or no that, yeah. That's, that's, well, I know that can happen. Hopefully, hospitality will get back up and running and we'll have some good news from the government tomorrow about the reopening and it'll ease, somewhat yes. ease the problem. And then Don in Formoy says there's a public toilet in Formoy, but not many people seem to know where it is. Maybe highlighting where toilets are. Maybe include them on Google Maps. Let tourists know when people are visiting an area. Highlight where the toilets are. I didn't know that because in actual fact that's been quite normal that a will sign posted in the town itself if they are the town. And uh, they should they should not be they should not be trying to find them uh, on Google and they'll see them because they should be so it's will take them straight away to most toilets in a good town, you know. Okay. So, yeah, just a matter of interest uh, before I go um Patricia the bottom line is that we do have um we automatic loan so it can sale as well by the same token. So we have a, a, a substantial, two substantial toilets in Southern Kinsale. Don't know why that one is blocked. And second of all is I don't even know whether the automatic one was as busy as what they say. Okay. And also, uh, they're, they're both it could have been just the times when the listeners were contacted us uh, that they were there. OK, and just while we have you on, the other issue that certainly uh, came up and has come up a lot, and I'm already getting texts in about it today, is uh, rubbish, people dumping rubbish and the lack of bins by the council. And I know this this was something that was addressed and the council's chief executive uh, Ted Lucy saying 958 bins uh, across the, uh, the county and he actually said if he'd his own way he wouldn't have any bins. Well I suppose what he's saying quite distinctly uh, on, on that front no, I, I don't think that would be possible with all bins but having, what he's saying distinctly is that people will have to understand to take over the rubbish home. That's the bottom line. Mm. And we'd only share the video if the bins were properly used 
to an advantage of those who will just have a little piece of paper or, or a stick so they can stick into. The bottom line would be that that, that that would be available for them. But there's people bringing in domestic rubbish from all over the area, major amount of stuff coming in, and, and, and forcing them into the bins themselves and the bins are all flowing. And the businesses themselves, inside in the towns and the villages and whatever the case may be, they have a serious responsibility to ensure that they have proper bins themselves to accommodate what they're selling. In other words, that the, that the wrappers and all the rest of it that goes in there, that they should not be available, that the public bin should not be available for that. And if they should have their own bins to dispose of that. That's their function, and that's that we'd be getting into every one of those in each individual town and village, and we'd be asking them to provide the bins themselves. That's what they should do. Okay, and, and people, dis- people disposing of their domestic rubbish in a public bin is one of the reasons why we've lost so many of our public bins, uh, not just in scenic important. areas, it's, it's all over towns. Okay, listen, we'll talk again in the meantime. Kevin, thank you for that and thank, thanks for joining yeah, us. Will. Good morning to you. That is uh, Kinsale-based Councillor Kevin Murphy. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG. Record today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. A newly established patient advocacy service is offering support to people in the Cork area who want to make a complaint about the care they've received in a public hospital. Claire Lahan is the service manager with the new group and uh, Claire joins me. Good morning to you, Claire. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well and, and you're very welcome. Do you feel some people are unaware of how to make a complaint about care that they may have received in a hospital? Is is that a problem? Yeah, I, I think it is. I suppose from my experience, um, us Irish maybe are a little bit shy about coming forward. And so um, we're very good at maybe recognising that we're not getting the care or the treatment that we want. But, but then we keep it inside. Maybe there's a fear that, you know, it would have repercussions if we make a complaint. And we're just reluctant to do that. Um, and I suppose our service is there to support people and actually support them to have their voice heard and then bring forward their complaint in a structured manner. And is it only by complaining that systems can change for the better for all patients? Um, I, I don't know if it's only by complaining, but definitely I suppose um, it, it enhances learning. So when a complaint is made, the idea is that, you know, people who, if there was an error made, if if bad behaviour was there, you know, that people can take learning from it and they can put in process improvement as a result. So we would encourage, and, and that is the idea of our service, and we would encourage people to make that complaint so that learnings can be taken um, from the hospital groups themselves to, to enhance um, the care and to enhance patient safety within the, in the hospital. And as this is, is our first time chatting with you and you are a newly established group, can you explain how and why the patient advocacy service was set up? Um, I can indeed. I suppose, so we are an independent and free and confidential service and we came about as a result of um, a HICWA investigation back in 2015 into um, a number of um, maternal deaths or baby deaths that had happened in Port Leash General Hospital. So at the time, um, Primetime Investigates had gone in first and then HICWA undertook an investigation as did the Ombudsman. And what they came out with was that there was failures within the hospital, but actually the families at the time, they needed the support of an independent person to bring them through that process and that it was really important that learning be taken and that learning be shared between hospitals and across hospitals and that that could only be supported through making complaints and actually then the support of the families w- would enable that to be enhanced. 
Yeah, and you know, for people going through a very traumatic event, they definitely need to be very gently guided through a, a process like this. So, talk me through what happens when a person would contact you. So, I, we have a team of um, trained um, independent advocates. So, when you contact our confidential phone line, um, they will talk you through maybe what has happened and, and listen to your experience and see what it is your issue is. Um, if you haven't really... So the complaints may be on a variety of areas. It could be, you know, that you've just had uh, been treated rudely within the hospitals. Maybe that you've had the unexpected loss of your baby during childbirth or there's been another serious incident where you've, you went in for one procedure and something else has happened. An unexpected event has occurred. So we, we would have support people in that full range. So I suppose when, when someone contacts our confidential line, the advocacy officer will talk them through. In the first instance, we would always encourage people to go back and just have that conversation locally because a lot of problems can be resolved um, informally. You know, they don't have to go through that complex complaint process. If that's not getting resolved, then we would encourage people to come back to us and we would support them to look at their information. So that might be by way of getting their files from the hospital, supporting them around doing that and then looking through the information with them to try and support them to put their complaint in a coherent manner. You know, um, I suppose... Hospitals are under pressure. The HSE is a complex is a complex um, system, and it's showing you how to present your complaint in a way that it will get addressed. So, what are the key points of your complaint? What do you want? What what, what answers do you want? Support you around that. I suppose once you've made that formal complaint, you should get a response from the hospital. And once you get that response, you might or might not be happy with what they come back with. And we can support you to look at your options then. Do you want to go for an internal review? Do you want to go for an external review? And again, we can help you around that. If there's meetings to be held, we can support you at the meetings by, you know, just in advance of the meeting saying, what are the answers you want here? How are we going to ask for these answers? Um, And then at the meeting, you know, taking notes with you, being an extra pair of ears in the room, taking in what's going on and then discussing your options with you afterwards to see how you'd like to progress things. Okay, you can't you can't act on behalf of the patient, though. Our, our, our remit at the moment is is empowerment advocacy, so it is very much standing beside the person and supporting them to raise their own voice um, and bring forward their complaints. And that may be a family member as well. You know, it may be supporting a family member depending on the the, the particular situations of, yeah. uh, of the case. It might be supporting that family member to bring the complaint on behalf of their uh, their loved one as well. Yeah, that yeah. I was going to that was going to be my next question. Can a person complain on behalf of a family member? I'm thinking, obviously, a parent could complain on behalf of a child. But what if it was a vulnerable adult? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Look, they, 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 there is there is lines there of people who can bring complaints. So, if by reason of disability or you know age. Um, a family member can bring a complaint um, on behalf of someone else. Again, if the person has capacity and isn't, isn't a ward of court and is in a position to bring a complaint, you know, then you need to have their consent to do that. But um, within the parameters of that, you are able to bring a, a, a complaint on, on behalf of someone else as well. OK, and it's, it's important to point out your service is free. It is a free service. It's completely confidential and it's completely independent from the HSE. So we receive no funding from the HSE. Our funding is through the Department of Health. So again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it came about from the Port Leash um, and the inquiries into Port Leash. And then um, it were funded through the Department of Health and provided by the National Advocacy Service for People with Disabilities. You've no way of predicting how busy you're going to be, Claire, have you? 
Um, we haven't. I suppose we're, we're in establishment since um, October 2019, um, and then we were formally launched by the then Minister for Health, um, Simon Harris, in November 2019. And I suppose COVID has had an impact on the development of the service. But uh, what, what we've really tried, what we're really trying to do now, is to build that awareness of the service around the country to tell people we are open, we are operational, we have a national phone line. We're there from 10 to, to 4 every day to take your calls and support you through that process. And I suppose it really is just to build the awareness across the country and particularly within counties because within Cork alone you know there's six hospitals that are in that public acute space um, so it's to bring that awareness to the people of Cork as well. Okay, alright and how can people contact you? We have a phone line and our national number is 0818 293 003 um, and that's operational every day from um, 10 to 4 and then we have a website and that's www patientadvocacyservice.ie OK, listen, we wish you luck with your work, um, Claire. And no doubt we'll speak again in the meantime. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye, bye-bye. bye-bye. That is uh, Claire Lehan of the Patient Advocacy Service. Now, a number of people have been on to uh, John Paul pointing out something that Stephen Donnelly, our Health Minister, said earlier. The Health Minister was talking about the rollout of the vaccine. Just take a listen to what he said to the 31st of June. It just so happens that based on the supplies that are coming in, if they continue to come in, as agreed with the pharmaceutical companies, then four in every five adults who wants a vaccine can be offered a vaccine by the end of June. But there's no, there's no magic about the 31st of June. On the 1st of July, we'll still be vaccinating. We'll be doing tens of thousands of people. Anybody copped what Minister Stephen Donnelly said wrong there? This is the Court Today replay on C103. And yes, you did hear our Health Minister Stephen Donnelly twice in that clip reference the, the 31st of June. And of course, when I was going to school, there was a little uh, kind of a, a sing-songy thing that you learned to remember how many days were in each month. And one of the lines were 30 days has September, April, June and November. All the rest of 31 save February. That is 28, except in leap year. Once in four, February has one day more. I can still remember that from my school days. So yes, but he did reference uh, the 31st. Our health minister doesn't know there's only 30 days in June, says one texter. What a disaster. And someone else is wondering, uh, is is it now possible that Stephen Donnelly and the government, is this Pat saying, are they going to give us an extra day? Jenny was on saying, is that it? They're giving us an extra day for 2021. New date to add to your diary, June 31st. 1850 Lines are open. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. A lot of calls and comments into the programme. Let me get through some of them. Michael and Fomoy was on to say he has noticed more and more ivy growing on ESB and phone poles. Now he says he doesn't know if it was always there or is it because we're out walking more that you start to notice things but he's noticed that some of the poles are nearly falling over and he reckons it's because of the weight of the ivy and he wonders what can be done about it. Could the council team up with the providers? He says some of the poles are slowly falling over in the area where he walks in for Moy and he believes it's because of the ivy growing up the poles. Was the ivy, I'm assuming the ivy was 
was always there. I think you're probably right, Michael. You're probably noticing it uh, more. Would I suppose if you, if you got a very heavy infestation of ivy, would it tip a pole over or not? Maybe it would. Has anybody else noticed that? That's from Michael in Formoy on rubbish bins in the council. Michael says that the council should be giving bags and equipment to those groups who are involved with the local tidy towns. They're out cleaning up our areas every single week and they save a council a fortune from employing people. As far as I know, but I'll throw it out there, any tidy towns groups listening. As far as I know, the council do, certainly in my area, there's always on a Saturday morning, there's a group of really civic-minded people who are out picking up rubbish and they're kind of in bluey, greeny coloured bags and then they're left out for collection by the council. So I'm, I'm assuming that the council supply the bags as well. If anyone from a tidy towns group uh, can let us know, do they supply the bags and the equipment as well and then do they pick up the rubbish after? So as I say, I think uh, that that's what happens at the moment. But if it doesn't, certainly our uh, Michael feels that that's exactly what uh, should be done. Katrina in Mallow says we have a problem in the Summer Hill area of Mallow. The place is normally spotless but of late Katrina has noticed what she describes as tinfoiled bags bags that have tinfoil on the inside, food bags you know where you buy takeaway food and she said they're thrown all over the road. She reckons it's coming from the school. She's approached the local school in the uh, area uh, but nothing has happened as other people living in the Summer Hill area noticed a proliferation of bags that is tinfoil on the inside. There seems to be a lot of it around lately. On toilets, Michael and Bosman says, I've got a medical problem. Uh, but the amount of shops and stores that don't have toilets, when you ask, they say, no, toilets are not for the public. They're only for staff. Surely when they apply for planning permission for any large shop or store, they should also be made to include toilet facilities for the public. It's crazy at the moment trying to find a loo when you're out. And if you have a medical problem, uh, Michael, yeah, my heart goes out to you. While Eileen on Beautiful Bear Island was on, she wants it publicly stated that the toilets on, Cast- on Castletown there are kept perfect. They're absolutely spotless. So that is good to hear. Good morning to you, Eileen, and good to have you along. Hi, Patricia. I was in a supermarket last Saturday and a lady asked the checkout operator, could she please use the toilet? She was told, no, sorry, toilets are not for public use. I was then walking out behind the lady who clearly had an incontinence problem. Oh, God help her. How cruel not to let her use the facilities. Petrol stations are allowing allowing customers use their toilets. And I would suggest to anybody heading to Mahan or Douglas shopping centre the toilets are open there shop local my eye says this listener if the supermarkets are not allowing people to use their toilets yeah I've been in some I've certainly seen I know Dunn's in Mallow their toilets are open and there are public toilets in Tesco in Mallow haven't needed to use it now but I'm assuming that they're open as well and I've certainly been in an Aldi store and anyone they're they're not public toilets in that they're not open to the public and you know a key has to be used a door has to be unlocked but I've certainly seen members of the public being allowed in there as well so I suppose it varies from supermarket uh, to supermarket but for somebody who has a medical problem it it, it is just so so uh, difficult I think uh, back to rubbish I think the rubbish bins in some of our large parks are simply too small for the crowds that go there especially the people now that are out and about trying to enjoy the fine weather particularly that the restrictions have been 
lifted. I think the council says this listener should be placing large barrels or a trailer or a kind of a small skip in all the parks. Put them on the weekends when they know that these places are going to be uh, busy. Terrific idea, but I can straight away see a problem with it. If you put a skip, say a small skip or large barrels, as you're suggesting, if you put them into... Uh, public parks or if you put them at beaches straight away you know you're going to have unscrupulous people who'll know that these skips and barrels are available on a Saturday or a Sunday and they'll be dumping their domestic rubbish it's one of the reasons that the rubbish bins are public rubbish bins why so many of them have been taken away and why they are smaller they're designed that if you're going out and you're having an ice cream and there's a wrapper left the public bins should be there for you to dispose of the the wrapper of the sweet bar you had or whatever it was as you're walking along. But they were never designed to take domestic rubbish. But unfortunately, over the years, as bin charges came in, there were some people, some would say, maybe they can't afford to pay for their bin collection. Other people are just too mean to pay for their bins to be collected. And what will they do? They offloaded them into public bins. And it's one of the reasons we all suffer uh, because uh, of it. But yeah, it would be a great suggestion if in areas where we know there's going to be large numbers of people that there would be facilities for people to dump their, dump their rubbish. Failing that, please bring your rubbish home with you. On public toilets, listeners, says Patricia, I'll bring my potty with me. I certainly would be going into any publics at the moment, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Who in their right minds are using public toilets? Well, lots of people, if you're out on a day trip or if you've got small children with you who need to use the toilet, there are lots of people using public toilets and hoping and praying, like what Eileen on Bear Island says, that the um, Bear Island the toilets there are absolutely spotless. You're hoping that when you go in to use a public toilet that it will be uh, spotless. Now, there's a couple of people on about... Oh, first say on Minister Donnelly. Thank you to lots of people pointing out that he said June 31st and there's only 30 days in June. Minister Donnelly says somebody else didn't answer any questions put to him last night. I assume it was some TV interview, was it? I think he comes across a very arrogant man, says this particular texter who is not a fan. Now, there's a couple of questions in about and comments in about vaccines. Let me look at some of those. Patricia, when do the 59-year-old age group have to register for the vaccine? That's from Tony. No date yet. It's only been announced yesterday that the over 50s will be the next group to be vaccinated, but no dates have been given out yet. But I am assuming that they will open the registration for the over 50s the same way that they did it for the over 60s. So Tony is right, it will start with the 59-year-olds and then the next day it'll be the 58, the 57. I'm assuming they'll do it the same way, but let's wait. We wait to hear from the HSE on that one. John and Balancholic says, Hi Patricia, I got my vaccine yesterday at City Hall. My appointment was for 15.15. I was free to leave the observation area at 15.40. That's efficiency, isn't it? All the staff, HSE, Army, noon security, Red Cross, very courteous, highly efficient. Feeling good today. Regards, John in Balancholic. That's fantastic to hear. Well done, uh, John. Hi, uh, Patricia. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much. Got my COVID injection last Friday in Mill Street at Dr. Christine's surgery. Was in and out in 25 minutes. No side effects. Only a little bit tired for a day or two. I'm 56. I've got asthma and diabetes. That's why I was getting my vaccine. Uh, No worries at all. My second now will be on the 21st of May. Looking forward to having it done and dusted, says uh, Catherine. Well done. Uh, Hi, Patricia. Now, there's an interesting one and I don't know the answer.
answer to this. You're going to have to check this one out. I got a COVID injection in January. It was my first AstraZeneca. No, sorry. I got COVID in January. I then got my first AstraZeneca jab in February. I am 50 since last December. Will I need to get a second vaccination? Because we know it was announced uh, yesterday that people under 50 will who have had COVID will only need to get one jab of whatever vaccine. So, yeah, you're very close to the 50 mark. You were only 50 the month before you got the you got the jab. I mean, if they go strictly by the rules, then you will go for your second jab because you are over 50. But I would suggest that when you get called, have a chat and they'll certainly point you in the right direction. And Mary says, Patricia, just wondering why asthmatics are not being called as priority cases like the diabetics. My son is 30. He's asthmatic. He was told he is going to have to wait until his age group comes up. I cannot understand it. Well, I've checked out on the, if you go on the hse.ie, they have a really good, really fantastic fantastic website when it comes to COVID but they give you all the details of the vaccination rollout and they go through the different groups like at the moment we know that the GP surgeries are doing the uh, group 4 and group 7 and if you go under group 7 asthma is actually uh, mentioned it's mentioned under chronic respiratory disease and these are the people that are being vaccinated uh, now and the example that they give of chronic respiratory disease under group 7 are people with stable cystic fibrosis but severe asthma is mentioned but what is defined as severe asthma it's continuous or repeated use of steroids so obviously your son's asthma is not deemed severe and that's the reason that he's not on the list at the moment I mean if you think his asthma is severe then I will be saying to get back on to his uh, doctor but at the moment it is just people with severe asthma that they are who who's, who's getting it at the moment under the people in the 16 to 59 uh, age group Hi Patricia I'm 66 years old disappointed that my husband and I haven't been called yet for our vaccine or haven't been called to our local medical centre in Skibbereen to get our, our, our vaccine. My husband has received an appointment but he has been called to Bantry. It surely would make more sense to be called to our local health centre. Tra- Travelling and then trying to find the place. Anyway, we'll be glad to get it over and avail of the service when our time uh, comes and that's because, and we have mentioned this before, all of the vaccines that have been given out to the 60 to 69-year-olds have been done at the vaccination centres. I mentioned it at the top of the programme this morning that the Bantry Vaccination Centre for West Cork opens today. Uh, Mallow are, opens tomorrow and next Monday. The vaccination centre moves to Clonakilty. And the powers that be decided that when AstraZeneca was given to the 60 to 69-year-olds that all of those vaccinations would be done at the vaccination centre. So it's the same for everyone. It's not just for you. And I know it's disappointing. People like the idea of just going to their local GP or their local medical centre. But that's the powers that be have decided from, I'm assuming, an efficiency point of view, they can get through more of the 60 to 69 year olds by following them all in together into a vaccination centre. And I'm assuming the very same thing is going to happen with the over 50s age group. Yes, don't have confirmation on that, but I'm assuming that it will be the same. And Sarah says, hi, Patricia, I got my AstraZeneca jab three weeks ago. Is there still a 12 week wait between the first jab and the second jab? I find this a bit ridiculous when I am immune compromised, says Sarah. Yes, that announcement was made uh, yesterday. 
yesterday that there is a 12-week gap between doses of AstraZeneca. Now, I don't know what age you say, Sarah, what age you are. It's a 12-week jab for people aged 50 or over who've already had their first dose if you're, or if, but if you're under 50 and at a higher risk of severe COVID disease, which I'm assuming you are when you say you're immune compromised, then you do have a 12 week wait. For others under 50, it is been pushed out to a 16 week wait for anyone who got an AstraZeneca who isn't at a very high risk of severe COVID. They're going to be asked to wait now uh, 16 weeks and it is to re, it, they say it, the, they're doing this to allow for more assessment of emerging evidence around the risks and uh, benefits but immune compromised if you're deemed at high risk of COVID then yes it is 12 weeks but remember at the top of the programme I read out a piece on a study that I came across out of England where they were looking at the because obviously England is where they can do a lot of studies around COVID they were looking at people who got their first jab I mean over 600,000 people they tracked people who got a jab either AstraZeneca or Pfizer and within three weeks people were I think for the Pfizer 68% protected and for the AstraZeneca 60% protected so you're already you're three weeks in you're already well on the road to being fully vaccinated now that doesn't mean you can totally let your guard down but you certainly are in a much safer position now than you were before you got that jab at three weeks ago someone else says Patricia hi got my jab yesterday in Cork very good so well organised arm is a little bit sore last night hopefully all will be okay yeah, that's one of the common side effects. And within a day or two, you should be absolutely uh, perfect. And this is from Kathleen. It says, hi, Patricia. Listen to your show every day. Thank you for that. I would just like to say thank you to Martin, who is in the reception in the park and ride bus depot. Uh, I would like to thank him for last Saturday. I was looking for directions to a shop. He was so kind and helpful to me, says Kathleen. Now, I don't know where that park and ride uh, depot is whatever it is and lovely gentleman by the name of Martin Kathleen want to publicly thank you for your kindness doesn't it always it costs nothing to be kind sure it doesn't and it goes such a long way 1850 C103 jobs Stock controller is required. This is for a warehouse in Quartertown, while a child care practitioner is required for full daycare service. That's in the Scarrell. Mallow Commercials, they're looking for a full-time tester. It's for CVRT on HGVs and LGVs. And Blarney District CE Projects, they've got vacancies. They're looking for caretakers and groundskeepers. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. A reminder to you, it being Wednesday, uh, Peter Dowdle will be joining us after uh, 12 today. If you have a gardening question, get your gardening questions in to us, uh, please. Uh, Kathleen has been back on uh, to say that the bus depot she was talking about were the very kind gentleman, a guy by the name of Martin was so kind and courteous to her on Saturday. The bus depot is near Harvey Norman's shop in Cork. Thank you for that uh, Kathleen and uh, good to know that that gentleman was so kind uh, to you. We've been talking about toilets. Tesco in Mitchellstown have their customer toilets open all day says uh, Liz 
and someone else was telling me about fabulous toilets somewhere. Uh, where is it? Well done to Little in Formoy, says this listener. They have fabulous toilets that are available for customers. Yes, so some, when people are critical of shops, some shops are really good and have toilets available, but unfortunately not all. Listener says, Patricia, what is wrong with people that they can't bring home what they take out with them and show more respect for public toilets when they use them? Yeah, I just, yeah, now it's so queer as folk my good mother uh, would have said I'm always saying it when we talk about people going you know when you go out on a picnic or you go out to a scenic area or you go to the beach you arrive with bags with all your bits and bobs uh, in it and you might bring you might have everything by the kitchen sink packed because you don't know what you're going to need on any particular day so you arrive with some kind of bags with you why you just can't put everything back into it I just I, I can't understand it uh, Eamon in Cove says Morning Patricia could you please tell me how people can donate to the Cork University Hospital India appeal. I don't know, Eamon, but leave it with me and I'll check it out. I know I was talking to John Paul in the office before I came on air and uh, we are looking at uh, doing something about India tomorrow because the stories that are coming out from India, it is, if you've watched it on the news and particularly if you go to someone like the CNN channels. I was watching CNN uh, yesterday and I was just, I... I, it actually had me in tears uh, to watch what's going on in India to see the people struggling for to breathe and they been turned away from a hospital and, and you know no room at the inn not the fault of the hospitals uh, for sure and to see some of the good people, good, kind people in India and they're trying to get oxygen to help the people and they outside the hospital setting up like these oxygen stations to give to people as they're waiting to try to get into the hospital and they're queuing up outside the hospitals knowing that the only way they're going to get into the hospital is when somebody passes away and then when somebody passes away the amount of cremations, the crematoriums are swamped. It is just beyond depressing. It really is. I know that the death toll has crossed the 200,000 mark and it's a huge country. They've 1.3 billion people and it's good to see the rest of the world are, are stepping up. I just saw this morning that aid from Ireland were sending these special ventilators over to them that we bought at the time. We got them at the start of COVID-19 when we thought we were going to have to be running field hospitals when we were worried that we were going to get that bad that our health system would crack. Uh, so th- there was th- talks that we may need to set up field hospitals so they bought these special ventilators for field hospitals. We obviously and thankfully never needed to use a field hospital, never needed to use these special ventilators. So I know that's one of the things that certainly here in Ireland, I think they, they got shipped over today and I saw emergency aid and oxygen and other items were arriving from the UK and I know the United States and other European nations are all sort of rowing in and, and trying to do the best they can to help out India because it is just a desperate, desperate situation. People are arriving in cars, in rickshaws, in ambulances and patients and their family members desperate trying to get oxygen for them and they're just travelling wherever they can uh, to try to pick up oxygen. Medicines now are becoming unavailable. It's just, it's shocking. And then you see I mean, the powers that be in India really do have a lot to answer for because they ran election rallies, which should never have been ran. Uh, and also some of the religious festivals. I mean, even yesterday, with all of the rising cases in India, there was about 
25,000 people took part in what was the final bathing day of a, some religious festival that was held in some part of North India. It's to do with the bathing, the bathing in the, on the banks of the Ganges and, Ganges and it attracts millions of, of pilgrim, pilgrims and they reckon it's, it's become a super spreading event but it really is. It's just a shocking, shocking uh, situation. But I, Eamon, I'll check out for you and I'll try and get John Paul to get details of how people can donate according to Eamon the CUH have some kind of an India appeal and of course there would be many people working in our health service including in CUH who come from India and that must be shocking for those people to be over here. Can you imagine if there was a really bad situation going on in Ireland and you're working abroad and you're looking at that and particularly when we're, we're getting to grips, we're, we're slowly but surely getting back to some kind of normality in this country and to think that you would be watching your own home country and, and what's happening over there. It's just dreadful. We'll see if we, I'll get John Paul to look into CUH to see what that fund is all about and thank you for drawing our attention to it. Now as much as half the land in Killarney National Park is now believed to have been burnt in the devastating fires that raged last weekend. Demands are now intensifying for action against countrywide burning which the Irish Wildlife Trust said has become an annual ritual. The Green Party in West Cork say these wildfires destroy our natural heritage and our shared health. And joining me Skibbereen Green Party member uh, Rory Jackson. Good morning to you Rory. Morning, Patricia. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing very well, and and you're welcome uh, to, the, to the program. Now, of course, we were. I was talking about photographs that are in the paper today from the the national park in Killarney, but we also had devastating fires in Dunmanway. Oh, have we have we any idea at this stage how these fires started? Um, to be honest with you, it's still under investigation with the authorities, but I know that they're working on leads uh, provided by the public. Um, so we know. Uh, that you know, it's it's very hard to put a you know, but certainly not. We're, we're not blaming landowners in in most of the cases. That's that, that much we do know. So, but you know, it's a a huge problem nationally, um, and we just have to make sure the public come forward with any information they can, and, and inform the guardian and the, the rangers. Are you concerned uh, about the demands that these fires are putting on on our firefighting services? Well, 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 hugely. I mean, the average cost annually per council, and that's these are only average costs, is is over a million a year per council uh, in one of these costs, and that's with, without adding in the uh, helicopters from the air support, or air corps, and so on. You know? So we're we're very uh, uh, huge amount of funds are being spent um, maintaining. Uh, and, and, and stopping the fires from starting, you know, or, or that have been started, should I say. I mentioned the photographs that are in the paper of, of the deer looking very lost in the, yeah. the National Park. Yeah. God help them and their feeding grounds have all been uh, destroyed. From a yeah. wildlife uh, point of view, these fires do a huge amount of damage. Exactly. The the, the, the biodiversity and the, and the wildlife damage is immense. We were very lucky... And I'm glad to hear that the eagles in Killarney have, have, have managed to be uh, uh, avoided, have avoided the fires in this stage. Um, so that's good news. But it, it could have been something else, you know. But the, the deer are, are hugely affected. Um, and, but it's very important to remember that the biodiversity, that, you know, the, the food that the deer and the eagles and the feed off is also, you know, suffered uh, hugely in this. So they're... they're 
start looking for their food now, you know. They, they have no source to, 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 to sustain life, so there could be possible uh, effects for, for them from that. You know, they'll have to go further away to get to get food for the, to stay, you know, to keep them alive, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there's a warning gone out because um, they they because they're going to have to move further. The deer to try to find uh, food, there is a, they, they could come into conflict with motorists and uh, farmers, and and the accidents could end well, up. Exactly, Lives could exactly. be lost. Uh, and I think it's important to add that um, outside of the the wildlife and, and biodiversity, um, I've been been stressing to people that, that if you can smell or afar, you're actually breathing that in and, and, and it's basically a human health hazard just but you're passive smoking you know um, and, and we know what that does to, to people's lungs and, and people who suffer from asthma and, and have health issues um, related to lung um, you know so it's putting extra stresses on them and worries uh, houses are having to be evacuated while fires are controlled so the cost is kind of beyond just what the council pays to their fire service you know the Minister for Local Government and Heritage uh, paid a visit to the National Park to assess the damage uh, and yep. he announced the recruitment of additional conservation officers. I mean, I, I'm assuming that's something you welcome, but is that sufficient? We, we need to see boots on the ground and, and certainly I welcome um, the Minister's um, increase in numbers from 25 to 50. is a huge importance. I, I, I think the, our, our, our heritage is undermanaged uh, without question. We, You know, there is merit in in arguing that uh, we should have full-time fire-watching rangers who, who in other countries would be, you know, housed in, in, in a sort of tower that they'd be monitoring um, for fires. And, you know, for the cost of maybe 40000 a year, um, roughly, it would probably be worth um, investing in that kind of, you know, range, you know rangers watching for fires. So, so when a fire does start, it can be eliminated as soon as possible and I think I think we need to be thinking that way rather than you know taking action after the event has happened mm. to prevent them starting you know and then members of the general public we all have a role to play when we're out and about and lots of people are out and about and when they have been enjoying the fine weather if you see anything you're, you're saying report it report it yeah yeah and, 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 and you're not you're not having to you know you can report anonymously but, but it's important to take pictures Report. We have the Ghost Fires page set up for over ten years now, eleven years now. I started that, and uh, I, I keep pushing for people to, to to don't be afraid. Put up the a picture, call the Bugatti, and and and, and inform. Um, it's it's uh, really important. Yeah, one of our listeners says this happened. Did she say a couple of weeks ago? Because it's a very lengthy, a lengthy text. Mm. She was out mm. walking in the Court McSherry uh, woods, mm. and uh, she was walking behind. Now she said they were Eastern Europeans because she could hear their accents and they were speak, speaking in their native uh, mm. language. And there was the mm. smell of their cigarettes. They were smoking a strange Eastern European mm. cigarette that had, had a different mm. smell. And next she noticed one of them just dropped the cigarette. Now she was cleaning yeah. up after her dog, and she mm. noticed that this cigarette was just smouldering away. Now yeah. she had the foresight to put it out she even mm. picked it up and put it into one of her her doggy bags and made mm. sure that it was out and brought it home and, and mm. binned it but a fire can start that's all it takes as, as easily as that can't it yeah, it's all it takes uh, is something to throw a cigarette over the car and, and, and not and having not put it out and, and, and goes into especially during this kind of dry weather that we're witnessing now with the winds 
you know, behind it, it'll it'll start a fire very quickly. And people just don't seem to realise that a, a smouldering cigarette, uh, you know, can cause so much damage. Um, and even just a bad exhaust in a car um, or machine um, firing out sparks will will start a fire. You know. Okay, and you don't you don't believe that any of these farms are caused by farmers. Burning I, horse. I, I, I'm not. Um, I'm not blaming farmers in any way. Totally. I mean, look, landowners. It's just no tradition, um, and people. Most of most of the people uh, adhere to the guidelines. You know, between um, you know the first of September and the end of um, Mar- uh, March. March each year. Yeah. So you know they're 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 very good about that. I, I prefer that they didn't burn at all personally. Um, but you know, they, they, there's no need for it in my book. Uh, we need to stop this this grant aid. Uh, scheme which uh, encourages farmers to increase acreage to to get apply for the grant and get get it and the and by by burning they're doing that but we need to we need to end that practice uh, and the Irish Wildlife uh, Trust making the very same point they're saying that there should be an immediate suspension of the farm payment rules that yep. penalise farmers for yep. not having land in grazable conditions the rules have been long criticised because that's yep. pushing farmers into illegal burning in order to clear the land of, of gorse because then it goes on to encourage uh, grass growth so th- yep. you know your party's in government that really does need to be looked at Hugely and and it's a big uh, it's a big responsibility for the for the party to, to get on board with this and 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 promote um, a different type of farming. I mean, we're not just seeing fires; we're seeing machines coming in and 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 and, and expanding. You know, fields breaking down, biodiversity ditches, uh, hedgerows are being destroyed to, to do with farm expansion. So we need to change the way we farm, not stop farming, to change the way we do it. Okay. All right. Listen, we leave it there, uh, Rory. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is uh, Rory Jackson, uh, a Green Party member in Skibbereen. 1850-333-103. John Paul takes your calls. Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Now we're going to stay on a wildlife topic because help from the general public is wanted to track the movements and habits of one of the country's best known but least understood wild creatures. To chat to us about the Irish Hedgehogs Survey, I'm joined by Elaine O'Reardon, who is a zoologist at NUI Galway. Good morning to you, Elaine. Good morning, Patricia. You're you're welcome to the programme. We know that hedgehogs are nocturnal ramblers. Is that why so little is known about them by the general public? Yes, that's that's one of the reasons, um, because they, they come out late at night, they usually wait until it's fairly dark, and they don't occur in very high densities. You know, you you might have a one or two hedgehogs or even two or three come into your gardens and stuff, but they generally don't occur in, in clumps. So they're they're fairly spaced out throughout the landscape. So uh quite a lot of people never really see them. Have we any idea on the numbers of hedgehogs in this country? We don't yet know, um, because like that now with difficulties in, in kind of surveying them and I suppose for years Everybody just presumed they're common and they're widespread and and they're everywhere, and they you know they're not um, a you know strictly protected species or anything like that. So there hasn't been a great effort made to survey them uh, and kind of get numbers on them until until now. But over the last few years, over the last um, ten, fifteen, even twenty years, you know we've seen very steep declines in the numbers in 
um, in Britain and elsewhere in Europe. So I suppose it's made us kind of sit up now and think, okay, we we need to start uh, getting some sort of a handle on the numbers we have here and see that we can monitor them going into the future to see if we have similar uh, trends here in the numbers. What is the ideal habitat? I mean, where would we be most likely to find a hedgehog? Um, gosh, do you know what? I, I have so many people telling me they've hedgehogs in their gardens. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> is there any left in the countryside? But of course, we're always going to get more records where there's more people because they will see them. But they like habitats. They like plenty of cover. So lots of bushes and hedges and briars and, and areas with long grass and stuff like that. So places where they can nest inside the hedges and, and the long grass. And these areas as well provide a lot of food. So they, they feed on um, little invertebrates and, and insects and beetles and caterpillars and worms and snails and stuff like that. So any habitat that has a lot of bugs and things, that provides good food. So they tend to wamble along, you know, along the edges of hedgerows, along the edges of fields where you have areas with long grass and short grass. So they also then do very well um, in kind of areas around towns and villages and stuff because a lot of gardens do actually include a good variety of, of habitats in them. So... Um, they will be found in gardens and parks as well. I always think if you can kind of have a, a little bit of an unkept area in the garden, like a Absolutely. pristine garden is not going to attract a hedgehog because there are many benefits of having a hedgehog visit your garden. That's it, yeah. Um, they Well, I suppose, first of all, they're a sign that your garden is in, is, you know, if, if they're coming in and they're eating um, you know, beetles and, and caterpillars and stuff like that. It's a sign that your garden is, is pretty nature friendly. So I think that's good. Um, but also they, um, you know, they have a reputation for eating things like the, the slugs and the snails. Now, to be honest with you, probably not as many as people would like to think they eat, but they certainly do eat the, eat some slugs and snails. So they will help keep down some pest species that you have. And things like weevils and leather jackets, they love now. So, yeah, they, those are the things you don't really want too well, many of. Well, I mentioned earlier when you were, when I knew you were coming on the programme, uh, we had uh, some hedgehogs in our garden a couple of years ago. And I haven't seen them now this year. I'm really hoping that they are, they're, that, that they're back or will come back. And since we first discovered the hedgehogs, I used to, we used to have to put down bird friendly, may I say, a slug pellets. I haven't had to put down a slug pellet since we discovered these two hedgehogs mating in our garden very noisily uh, one night. Uh, and then I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know, uh, were they, would they be the same two that just hang around or do they, uh, is it just different hedgehogs that are coming to visit? would have, you know, they tend to keep a, um, a home range. They're not very strictly territorial or anything like that, but but uh, hedgehogs will maintain their own kind of area that they'll forage around. They can wander up to one or two kilometres even in the night looking for food. Um, so, you you know, you could definitely have the same hedgehogs coming back, you know, every night or every other night over and if, time. So. if the food supply is good, they'll definitely come back. Dave in Waterfall said, I spotted two hedgehogs in my garden only last night. I fed them dog food. They seemed to like it. Now, is that the right thing to do? Um, yes, look, there's no harm in giving them a little bit of extra, a little bit of extra food, particularly at this time of year. They're just coming out of hibernation. The females are, you know, it's mating season, so the females are, are getting ready for for giving birth and, and raising young. So um, it's no harm to give them a little bit of extra food um, at all. Uh, just to give them the right thing is this. Um, yeah, cat food or dog food, the, the wet stuff from a can or a packet. Um, I've heard reports that they don't particularly like fishy flavoured stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're very individuals. But the, the other thing is, look, they'll take the dry food as well. Uh, I'd advise maybe giving the, the, the 
dry cat foods because the bits are smaller and they can manage them easier than maybe some of the dog kibbles quite big. So um, just dry or wet cat food, water, plenty of water, particularly if they're getting dry food, and to make sure not to give them any bread or milk. So Because I know when we were small, that's what you, you gave all yeah. my life. They got bread and milk, but actually they can't digest either bread or milk. Okay, so, so ca- steer clear um, of that. that. I yeah. saw a little video clip of da- the wonderful David Attenborough in his own garden and he was filming the hedgehogs in his garden. Mince meat was what he put down, a little bit of mince meat and he said oh, that they yeah. love that. So it's meat, they, 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 they do seem to enjoy meat. Now you ran a survey last summer, Elaine. How did that go for you? Oh my gosh, people went crazy. People <laughs> are going crazy for hedgehogs. The whole country's gone hedgehog mad. <laughs> but no, over the last year, it was really good because we got over 2,000 um, individual records of, of hedgehogs from all around the country. So that was fantastic. And uh, yeah, it was kind of surprising as well because on any given year, you'd get about maybe 300, maybe 400 uh, hedgehog records submitted to the Biodiversity Data Centre on a good year. But as I said, the numbers were way up. And normally, about 60% of the, of the hedgehog sightings that you would see would be roadkill. Mm-hmm. But this year, about 75 4% of them, I think, were sightings of live hedgehogs. Brilliant. So that was interesting. I think a lot of that is because people were at home. That's exactly. <laughs> they weren't out in the road, so they weren't squatting hedgehogs. And, our, and I was going to squat. say lockdown boredom is keeping people in their gardens and they're spotting things that they've never spotted before. Exactly, exactly. And look at that, sir, the, the, the kind of casual recording scheme. People can submit records of hedgehogs at any time. That That is up there. Um, on the biodiversity on the biodiversity Ireland website, people can record hedgehogs any time at all. So that that's ongoing, absolutely. But this year, you're trying to get more information. Tell me what you would like people to do. Yeah, so this year, I'd like people rather than just like that now uh, putting in records casually when they see a hedgehog. I would like uh, some help from the public to actively go and you know survey areas to see if hedgehogs are there or not because it's important to know where they do but also where they don't occur so to do this um we are loaning people these uh footprint tunnels so these are kind of cardboard little tunnels with paper and ink and some um, cat food inside in them so they put out 10 of these over an area uh, within a one kilometer kind of a square area but generally a smaller smaller area is okay and then they check them every day for five days to see if hedgehogs have been in there the night before and that will give us a very good idea whether hedgehogs are present in the area or not so um, if people are interested in that they can sign up on the, the project website there's a little link there um, and it's the it's irishhedgehogsurvey.com if you go in there you can register and we'll be having training workshops then around the end of May start of June for um, for people who are interested in taking part Brilliant brilliant. and, and when would you expect to have results then the end of the year? Um, oh gosh, well we'll be asking people to do the survey between um, June and September okay. and we'll also, I would hope to carry it on again next summer I think, you know, to make sure that we have, you know, the data is kind of robust that we'll have enough surveys yeah, done yeah. I would like to continue next year. But I think we will have some sort of preliminary results at the by the end of the year. Great, we'll, um, have, we'll have you back on. on. <laughs> we'll have you back on again. I'll be dying to hear how, how our hedgehog population are doing and a listener wants to know, what do you do if you find an injured Hedgehog. Okay, um, there is um, there are a number of, of uh, wildlife rescues around the, the country and there's actually a national helpline now and I'm so sorry I don't have the number to hand but if you look up um, Irish Wildlife Matters yeah. um, I think it's .ie, that website they have a list of, of wildlife rescues and, um, 
and rehabbers there and they will have the, the number for the, the hotline. But if you see a hedgehog that's out during the day, if it's visibly injured, if there's flies around it, if it's wobbling or falling down, that's probably a hedgehog that needs help. Yeah. If it's moving around and it's full of purpose and it looks busy, it's okay, leave it be. Um, we, we, but, did, uh, we, did, we did a piece a couple of weeks ago actually on uh, wildlife, on uh, people kidnapping uh, animals that weren't injured at all, people that thought that they were young and, and you know, wildlife that they thought were injured and uh, flooding a wildlife hospital and there's nothing wrong with them. So you've got to be very careful when you decide to intervene to make sure that the animal does actually need help. That's it. And I would always just, just pick up the phone and ring any of the, like there's, the, let me see, the Hogsprickle is in Clare, the Kildare Animal Foundation Wildlife Unit, the Dublin Hedgehog Rescue. They'll take calls from anyone yeah. and they will, they will tell you what to look They'll out for. They'll give you the advice. Okay, Absolutely. so so once again, yours is the irishhedgehogsurvey.com for further information. Elaine, we wish you luck with it. Enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that. Lovely to talk Thanks to for joining us. Good morning. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. A couple of people are texting in and asking about bingo and the C103 bingo, which is coming back to us. And when is it starting? It's starting back on Monday, the 10th of May. So that's Monday week will be our first day of playing bingo. And we've teamed up to play bingo with the National Council for the Blind of Ireland, the NCBI, which is a wonderful, wonderful charity. You can buy your bingo books and get ready to share. It's at €300 a day. And then there's going to be a weekly jackpot every Wednesday. You'll hear the numbers being called out at 20 past one, 20 past four and again at 20 past eight. And the C103 bingo books are available in a number of shops. Somebody was saying, where can I buy them? In McCroom. If you're in McCroom, you can buy them at O'Leary's Super Value in McCroom. If you're in Watergrass Hill, they're available at Johnny's Food Market in Watergrass Hill. Down West Cork Way, if you're in League. Collins Centra in Drimmer League have them available and if you are in beautiful Glengariff O'Sullivan's filling station in Glengariff that's just some of huge amount of shops around uh, Cork uh, selling them and actually if you go on to the c103.ie to the website you'll be able to find a full list of the locations and I'm also told you can actually buy your bingo books online if you find that easier or if you can't find a shop that's close to you but if you go to c103.ie they certainly have the full list of locations and we're just asking people now grab your bingo books now and get ready to play uh, bingo of course greatest hit C103 but it kicks off on Monday the 10th of May now some of your questions coming in on wildlife first and we're talking about hedgehogs in the last hour Mag says hi Patricia hope you're well I am indeed thank you for asking Mags. when living in the UK uh, a number of years ago I heard crash of milk bottles out the back rushed out to see what was going on and there lo and behold was a lovely hedgehog he was so friendly we ended up building up a relationship I used to bring him in in the winter and put him in in a drawer I'd leave him out in the morning I'd hear a crash again of the milk bottles he was looking for a drop of milk I kept him for as long as I could until I returned home to Cork I'm hopeful that he's having a good life now says Max yeah and actually that's something we always did it was always milk and bread that you left out for all kinds of wildlife but especially for hedgehogs but listening to Elaine our zoologist this morning it's a completely wrong thing to be feeding hedgehogs they can become unwell because they're not able to digest as thick as the lactose 
in the milk and obviously the gluten inside in the bread. So it's kind of dog food, cat food, as long as it's not fishy. They don't seem to like a fishy smell. Or as I say, I watched this lovely clip of David Attenborough in his own garden out studying the hedgehogs and he just put down a little bit of mince meat. They didn't need a lot because they're small uh, little animals. But it's a wonderful thing if you have wildlife like that living in your garden to be able to watch it as well and to look at it is, is fantastic. Okay, and Mike, um, the fires and the gorse fires and the burning of the gorse Mike says the new rep scheme is very disappointing. He said, I would like to see a, a Gore's incentive. The old people talk about the furs break is what they would have called it many years ago. And they would have gorse growing in the centre of fields. This would have been back in the 30s and 40s. These lovely wild plants would provide a habitat for birds and also at the same time store carbon, which is something we're all talking about at the moment, uh, says uh, Mike. And there, yeah, there is certainly, there's a big call now to to look at this whole this whole area around the farm payments for for farmers because it's it's causing some of them to light these fires and we know we're out of the lighting of the burning of the gorse that should have ended on the 31st of May but I thought it was when I was talking with Rory from Rory Jackson from the Green Party he reckons that certainly the the fires that we've had of late he reckons it's nothing to do with landowners that they were either started with what one listener said walking behind somebody who just threw a lit cigarette in a, in a forest area and only that she saw it smouldering and, and put it out that very quickly could turn into a very very large fire so we just need to be so careful and with people having barbecues and lighting fires you just need to be careful Peter said farmers to avail of the single farm payment must make sure scrub etc is removed from their land so of course uh, some have no choice but to remove the scrub and many burn it off so so we just have to we just have to stop doing uh, that uh, Joan in Formoy. A lot of people here in Formoy are talking about the Christmas decorations that are still remaining up in town. Are there other towns that still have Christmas decorations up? At this stage, they must well leave them up for Christmas. Christmas won't be far coming, will it, for 2021? Uh, we've contacted the council uh, before on this who say that during Level 5, removing of the Christmas decorations is not deemed essential work. So they've just, I'm assuming the lights aren't on. They've just let the decorations up. I've passed a couple of restaurants that slash pubs, slash one gastropub in particular. And every time I pass it, they sort of a large Santa Claus is in the window and you can see that the decorations are still left up because they would have closed the door on Christmas Eve. Now, I don't know if that's the case in many pubs or many businesses that shut up shop on Christmas Eve and haven't been back because of Level 5. Will some be returning to shops and businesses and bars where the Christmas decorations are still up but Joan is right sure halfway through the year we might as well leave them up until uh, next year Mary on public toilet says personally I would not use a public toilet but what has what has happened to the wild open countryside and gateways are people too posh now to get out of their cars and have a quick pee on the side of the road? I've never picked up anything over all the years where I was short taken on a journey and had to pull in. Are people too posh to pee on the side of the road? No, I think if you're on a long journey, people do that. But I think, Mary, what we've been talking about are people who are going into towns and cities and people going to the beach and not having public toilets available. I'm, I am absolutely 100% confident that and sure that people who are driving on journeys, if there isn't enough if there, you know there isn't a toilet break along the way that people are certainly still doing that jumping in over the, the ditch hoping that nobody is going to uh, see you. Joan in Mallow says I got my vaccine feeling a bit off with slight headache but I was fine after a few days getting my second jab shortly thank you for that uh, Joan and that slight headache actually that survey that I looked at from England where the 
600 odd thousand people who'd had either a Pfizer or an AstraZeneca and were asked to track how they felt in the eight days after receiving the vaccine and they were comparing the different mild side effects. A, a, a headache was the most common for both AstraZeneca and for the Pfizer and also what was interesting was it seems to be women more than men end up with these very slight side effects for a couple of days and I don't know whether they will look into that in more detail or not but that's what certainly is coming out from the uh, survey. Now uh, stay on vaccines. Listening to your comments earlier about the medical centre in Skibbereen I too had the very same experience when I and my husband went for our vaccine. It ran like clockwork from the moment we went in until the moment we were finished. I must in particular compliment Dr O'Shaughnessy, his team, Teresa and all the staff at the centre for such a great experience experience. Well done to all. And that's from Catherine in Roscarby. Thank you for that, Catherine. Hi, Patricia. I'm 68 years of age. I've registered now almost two weeks ago. Still haven't got an appointment yet. I don't understand what's happening in our area of North Cork in Dublin and in Limerick. They're giving it out now to 67-year-olds and 66-year-olds. It seems to be very slow here. Thanking you, says Mary. My thinking on that, Mary, is because it's only tomorrow that the vaccination centre in Mallow is officially opening and we have heard from some people that have started to get vaccination appointments for Mallow. So I would imagine that that's what the delay is rather than ask you to go into the city to one of the vaccination centres. If you're in North Cork, your nearest is going to be is going to be in Mallow. So they start vaccinating from tomorrow. And believe me, they'll start flying through them once the vaccines arrive and they have enough vaccines, they'll be flying through them. So I would imagine in the coming days, you should be, our coming days and weeks, you should be certainly a couple of weeks max, I'd say, you should be getting your appointment and you'll be able to uh, to go along and get your jab. Jim then was on to us to say, uh, Patricia, just to let you know, pleased to hear uh, that my wife got a text for her vaccination for Sunday next, 2nd of May at Mallow GAA. She is 69. So they're obviously starting again with the 69-year-olds. Yeah, you see, I don't know if they're doing it by age or not. To me, it's been done by postcodes. I think definitely the postcode is playing a role. And then maybe with the postcode, it's going down by age. Maybe it is. So if your wife is 69 and she has her appointment for next Sunday, then Mary is 68. You could be the following week, Mary. And please come back to us and let me know when you get your appointment. And Jim, good luck to your uh, wife getting her vaccine next uh, Sunday. That'll be a nice bank holiday boost for her. And then staying on vaccines. Tim says it was suggested on prime time last night that vaccines for those in the in the over 50s, the 50 to 59 year olds could be delayed. Why? It's due to the fact that they, they were due to get their jab mid-May but the majority of the Johnson & Johnsons now were told there's a delay with them. They're not going to arrive until mid-June. If they continue vaccinating as promised then they won't have anyone take the Johnson and Johnson when they arrive under the present NIAC guidance. So the theory is that they leave the 50 year olds until mid-June when the Johnson and Johnson vaccine arrives. And you are right, Tim, there is a shortfall in the delivery of the first batches of the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine. Around 40,800 doses were due to arrive this month, but now that's likely to be just over 26,000 with the second reduced delivery arriving next week so that will have a knock-on effect. The only thing Tim though I will say 
uh, about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. You get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's a one vaccine dose and then two weeks later you're fully vaccinated. If somebody was to get an AstraZeneca jab, they have to wait 12 weeks or now if they're under 50, they're going to have to wait 16 weeks before they get the second jab. So once you get the Johnson & Johnson, it'll be frustrating for people if there's a delay of a month. But the the, bound, the other good side of it is once they get it within two weeks, they will be fully fully vaccinated where they will be waiting for their second uh, second AstraZeneca or Pfizer or a Moderna. But you are right, there will be a delay with the uh, Johnson and uh, Johnson. And hi, Patricia, I was driving through a beach in driving, I, I'm assuming by a beach, was it in West Cork? I don't think you drive through the beach. Anyway, last Sunday, it took me about 20 minutes to get through with all the crowds that were around. Now, if you go into a shop, we all have to wear masks but there was nobody wearing masks when they were out and about last Sunday not one in sight am I missing something here well I think the rules and the regulations are that you don't have to wear a mask when you are outside we're told we're all safer when we're outside and we're actually we're told you're by the beach if there's any kind of a breeze you're even safer because it's blowing it all away so unless you're in a very crowded area and everybody's on top of each other they say it is okay I mean the guidance are it is when you're outside unless it's say very very crowded you don't have to wear a mask so I'm assuming that people going for a day to the beach the last thing they're thinking about uh, is wearing masks but again I keep saying to people if you feel uncomfortable move away move on and obviously you were in your car so you were uh, safe now here's one that really I kind of had to step back when I read this and had to reread it again but I'm interested in listeners thoughts on this Patricia question for your listeners please I collected my niece from secondary school on Monday now if you remember Monday it was a very hot warm day she got into the car I said why don't you take your jumper off in in school because obviously she was very overheated and I really wasn't prepared for the answer she gave me. She said, oh, the girls can't take their jumpers off in school because of the way the teacher looks at them. The boys can take their jumpers off because the teacher doesn't look at them in the same way. Is that not a disgrace? How to treat our young ladies of the future if this is happening inside in our school, our, our schools? This should not be allowed. I am just blown away by that. Then obviously, the young girl hasn't made it up. She And I'm assuming it's one teacher because she doesn't say teachers. One teacher. Am I right in saying it's a male teacher is looking at the girls a little bit funny when they take off their jumper? But obviously all of the girls are feeling that uncomfortable around this teacher. And if they are feeling that uncomfortable around this teacher, that to me should be reported. I mean, that's just, this is 2021. The girls inside in a classroom on a very warm day. I was expecting you to say that the schools weren't allowing anyone to take off their jumpers that they needed to leave their full uniforms uh, on. But I, if the boys are allowed to take them off, but the girls are not taking them off because of the way that the teacher might look at them is absolutely shocked. I'm really, really taken aback uh, by that comment. Has anybody else heard of anything like that? And what would you suggest that those young girls can do? Uh, I, mean, I know it's very hard to go and report a teacher or complain about a teacher, but that really is absolutely shocking. 1850 John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. And we are looking for your gardening questions uh, for Peter Dowdle. Please, you can get those into us. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council's Community Support Programme. If you or anyone you know needs help in accessing non-emergency and non-medical support, 
reports or advice, see corkcoco.ie. The RNLI's May Day campaign, that is beginning on this Saturday, the 1st of May, and it runs throughout the month. Lifesavers are calling on supporters to join the May Day Mile and cover the distance for the charity in any way you choose to do. And it's to raise vital funds to help lifeboat crews continue their work. And God knows they have been really busy of uh, late. To sign up for the May Day Mile or to make a donation in support of the RNLI's Lifesavers, you can visit rnli.org forward slash support May Day. And St Vincent de Paul will have a collection van in Dunstores Car Park in Bishopstown. It's this Friday from 8am to 3.30. Donations of bagged, clean clothing, shoes, curtains, soft furnishings and toys will all be accepted. And Castle Lions Community Draw will take place next Monday, the 3rd of May. Tickets are now on sale from all the members are online at Castle Lions Parish Facebook page. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. I mentioned Christmas lights and Christmas trees still up. Well, our North Cork man in Germany has sent me in a picture from Temple Bar in Dublin. I don't know who took this from, but he says, Hi Patricia, Temple Bar in Dublin. They still have their Christmas trees up outside and they look cool and they're lit. I can see in the photograph the fairy lights are still uh, on. Not long to go now. Stay safe from your North Cork man in uh, Germany. And hi Patricia, on Christmas street lights etc. Driving into Clonakilty last Saturday evening from the east side of the town we saw a Christmas tree. Santa Claus and his sleigh still there and by the way the lights were still up on the tree and they are still shining brightly and as I say when we got onto the council they say under level 5 it's not deemed essential to take them down so I think they might as well just leave them up completely and also coming into us Patricia listening to all the compliments read the vaccination centres we got ours at the Living Health Centre in Mitchellstown it was done so well I think they could sell tickets for round 2 says Dan people would willingly pay to go back and someone else says the vaccine Vaccine facilitators have been so efficient and so helpful. I suggest that they should be the ones running the country. (laughs) Anybody vaccinating at the moment, uh, you're doing a fantastic job. Uh, Keep it going. And Eamon in Cove, Eamon, I checked out for you. Eamon contacted us before at 12, wondering how we could donate to the CUH. He heard about the CUH India appeal. So I checked it out during news at uh, 12 and staff at the Cork University Hospital. They've launched an appeal for donations of any available respiratory equipment for hospitals, medical supplies, from hospitals, medical suppliers and healthcare organisations and the idea is they're going to gather them up and then send them to assist the COVID-19 medical efforts in India but that's what they're collecting it's respiratory equipment Professor Seamus O'Reilly is a consultant medical oncologist at CUH and he said that the staff at the hospital are really anxious to express their solidarity with their Indian colleagues and he made the point that healthcare services in Ireland would have collapsed in January were it not for the assistance and work of the Indian colleagues who work in this country. He said CUH obviously also has a very historic link with uh, India. We we will never forget the 1985 Air India disaster and he said this also underlines the efforts uh, to appeal for respiratory supplies to be sent to India. Now the efforts are going to be coordinated by the HSC and any public or private hospital or any healthcare company with equipment to donate can contact the CUH hospital manager. Professor O'Reilly says that good can come from very difficult 
things and he's asked people the general public who would like to donate to donate through the UNICEF vaccination programme and you can find out more about that on the UNICEF uh, website and uh, earlier this week the government announced it's sending these 700 oxygen concentrators to India that's part of their emergency uh, donation and I'm sure that that went out today I'm sure that went to this morning it headed for Delhi uh, airport and these were these oxygen concentrators that we bought when we thought we'd need field, field hospitals so 700 of them now on their way hopefully that plane has taken off and they're on their way to help India who've recorded deaths in India have now passed 200,000 and of course it is believed that figure is actually much much higher because the numbers of people that are dying that are not being accounted for through hospitals and for example so many people are dying at home dying on the side of the roads, dying outside of hospitals and they're not actually being counted in the official figures so the number of 200,000 uh, is possibly and is actually much uh, higher. God help them. We will remember them all in our thoughts and prayers. 1850 John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103 with Jean. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cusack Insurance is Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie This is the Cork Today replay on C103. For C103 photos, videos and more, follow us on Instagram and get a good look at what's going on across Cork. Search Instagram for at C103 Cork. Gardening on C103 with Bandon Co-op Garden Centres in Bandon, Kinsale and Enniskeen. For top quality plants, advice and value, think Bandon Co-op Garden Centres. C103. 
And Peter Dowd of theirishgardener.com uh, joining me on this. Well, it's now a sunny afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It is a bit sunny at the moment. I know there's some showers uh, forecast. But when I was reading the forecast, there's a, there's a, no, it's only a grass frost, but there's a frost for tonight. Uh, temperatures down to minus one. Is I'd frost at this time of the year not, nothing really to worry about? Not really. They're, they're superficial. Like even over the lovely weekend that we had the gorgeous weather, I was up early and like there was a, there was a slight frost, you know, on, on the kind of roof of the house and things like that. Um, it's not it's not unheard of for it to happen at this time of the year. It is a bit unusual because we're at the end of April, but it's not unheard of. But no, I mean, it's superficial damage, but I suppose it is it is right to send a word of warning, Trish. So uh, like anything that you have growing in the garden, like hedges, shrubs, etc., they, they might their new growth might be slightly blackened or, or, or burnt, but they, they'll grow through it. That'll be no problem at all. Uh, but your your summer bedding or any kind of uh, frost tender annuals that you've been starting off from seed or you might have recently got from a garden centre or wherever, uh, they wouldn't. You'd want to be careful with them, all right. If it goes to minus one, even just for one night, that it could do a lot of damage to them. So anything that's what I would call soft, like as I say, your your seedlings or your even your vegetable seedlings, pay attention to them. But most everything else in the garden will be fine. Okay, straight in with uh, questions on for this. Pictures come in with this, but I don't think John Paul has sent them on to you. But maybe I can just. Uh, uh, tell you what's going on here. It's hi, uh, Trish and Peter. Uh, these are photographs of my trees splitting. Can you help? No traces of deer or hare. I live in the Beira area. This is from Peter. It's a crab apple, a pear, spindle, field maple, mountain ash, all different species, and all of them are splitting. The actual bark is splitting on all of them. That that is interesting. Like the, if it was just one one variety, you you I might, but I haven't seen the photographs as you say, Trish. So I can't say with any degree of certainty. But if it was just one variety, I would look at maybe it's something like canker or something like that. But it wouldn't be widespread on all those species. So uh, I, if if John Paul sends me on the photographs, I'll, I'll have a look at them on. and I'll certainly yeah. answer it next week. Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll get it them. It does sound. Them. It does sound though. It does, sorry to interrupt you, it does sound uh, that it's so widespread on different species. It does sound like an animal, it's like a pest. Okay. Nora says, question for Peter, how do I care for orchids, please? <laughs> Where do I start? Um, the the orchids, like orchids is a huge group of plants, but I, I imagine that I'm, go- I'm right in when, when I say that she's probably talking about the moth orchid, the phalaenopsis, which is the, the, the gorgeous house plants that are, you know, quite commonplace here. And they flower for months and they're a really stunning little house plant. Uh, they give such great value in terms of their flower. The care for them really is far less than you might think. Um, they require very little. So if you have an orchid, let's say, uh, and you've, you've, you've got it in full flower, you've got it as a gift or you got it in the shop or whatever, just position it in a, in, a, in a room that's getting a good amount of natural light, but it doesn't have to be in direct sunlight. So it doesn't have to be at the window or anything like that. So just give it a normal, as I would say, living room or, or kitchen. Um it will flower away all on its own for three or four, even five months. So all I would do is about once a week, I would stand it into a kind of a bowl or, or a, a, a you know a saucer full of water uh, and let it absorb what it wants through the root system over about half an hour. Uh, and then after half an hour, just just empty the bowl and let it let it drain away again. And do that about once a week, and that'll be enough water for it. Don't. Don't now. You will see some textbooks and some things say to mist it to create humidity. I don't mist around the orchids, and I think it's unnecessary. And the reason I don't is because if any of that mist gets on the flower petals, you'll see the tiny little black spots develop on the petals. So I would just water it from below. Then the interesting thing is when the flower dies back, Trish, um, which it will in time after a few months, 
don't don't first of all don't throw the orchid out don't presume it's gone it's not it's just that the flower has stopped uh, but e equally don't don't remove all the flower stem down to ground level something i used to do until i until i i i, I learned more i learned better um so you don't remove the whole flower stem if you look at the flower stem you'll see a little node or a couple of nodes on that stem it's like uh, the best way to describe it is like a little green band-aid around halfway down the stem so so cut to that node right so leave the node at the top of the stem that you're leaving behind you uh, and what that will do is uh, you'll you'll see after a month or more you'll see another flower stem will emerge from that node um, so when it's at the point, you can either leave, cut it back to the node and either leave it where it is or move it to somewhere less obvious in the house. I, I kind of mind thrives and neglect when it stops flowering. I cut it back and I put it on top of the bookshelf and forget about it for a few months. And then I would say after about two or three months, uh, you can start uh, giving it a drop of orchid feed, liquid orchid feed about once a week, once a fortnight, and you'll have more flowers coming on in no time at all, really, after a couple of months. And they like to be fairly pot bound, don't they, orchids? <laughs> Sorry, that's a very good point, Jess. They do. They need to be pot bound, so don't don't kill it with kindness. You'll see the roots nearly breaking the pot. Uh, but they, 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 as you say, they need to be under stress to produce the bloom. So you might you might think you're you're doing the right thing by giving it a nice big pot with lots of compost. Actually, that's the worst thing for it. It doesn't want it. The compost is really just to hold it. It's it's an epiphytic orchid, so it, it doesn't need any nutrient from the compost. You want just bark and maybe a bit of grit uh, to keep it good and open in a pot, as you say, that that looks too small for it. Okay, Jack from Glasheen has written to us uh, saying, question please for Peter. When is the best time to divide daffodil bulbs, narcissus, etc.? Uh, thanking you for your excellent programme. Well, th thank you very much. Well, I suppose the compliment for the excellent programme is to you, but I'll, no, I'll take it for the garden. No, it's you because it said garden <laughs> section, so I'm, giving, I'm passing it to you. Okay. What, what can you um, and a lot of people will have the daffodils are, have died. If they've absolutely. Still, I've still seen a lot of them in bloom, but a lot of them have died back at this stage. A lot of them will have gone, as you say, a lot are still in bloom. That will depend on the variety as well as what part of the country you're gardening in. Um, but tulips and all these things are still in bloom. Alliums are only, will only be only just beginning over the next couple of weeks. So dealing with what he's talking about there, daffodils, narcissus, tulips, all those spring bulbs, uh, it, it's very simple, really. With daffodils, you can actually leave them in the ground from year to year and then every four or five years lift them to divide them. So when you lift them to divide them, which is what the question is, Leave the foliage die back and leave the flower stem wither and die back because all the chlorophyll and all the nutrients in, the, in those leaves and that stem is going to go back into the, the bulb, which is just a modified swollen, swollen stem uh, and leaves. Um, and that's the food reserve for next year's flower and next year's growth. OK, so let it all go back into the bulb. And it's a good idea when the foliage is dying back to, to feed those with a good quality tomato food, like the nature safe tomato food. So it, so it has all the nutrients and potassium and phosphorus for, for doing well next year. When they have all died back and gone brown, lift them out of the ground then. So that will probably still be a few weeks away, maybe even a month or more away. So when they've gone brown, lift them out of the ground. Where you did have one bulb, you'll see now that that root plate could be sustaining three or four or, eight, or maybe even five or six bulbs. So literally just pull them apart, divide them into individual bulbs, wrap them in a bit of newspaper, a bit of straw, something like that, keep them, even a brown paper bag, uh, and, um, and and store them somewhere cool and dry until planting out from, from September onwards again. Now, if it's tulips that you're doing, it's exactly the same same process, but I wouldn't plant my tulips out till later in the year, probably December, January, even as late as January for tulips. Okay, you're going to hate hearing this one. Anne in Lep says, my daughter yeah. has purchased a house at Japanese knotweed growing and it's getting near the house. What advice would Peter give her? Oh, it's, 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 this is such a... 
a quagmire of an issue, if you like, because there's legal implications here and everything. And uh, anyway, do, do, just to make people aware that if you're selling a house, you do need to you do need to to declare if there is Japanese knotweed in the site or on the site. But that's the first thing. Anyway, uh, if you have it. The, the the only advice I can really give you is to, to contact one of the because there's only a couple of professional companies out there um, that deal with Japanese knotweed and that are licensed to deal with it. So if a, if a landscaper comes in, for example, or some fella comes in and says, oh, let me dig that up and take it off site for you. Don't let them do it. It's illegal to take it off your site. And if as a result of it leaving your site, it spreads to somewhere else, you are liable. So be very aware of that. Nobody is allowed to transport soil with Japanese knotweed in it. Nobody, there's nobody licensed to do it in Ireland, right? Okay. So that's the first thing. So it's a de- you could only control it on site. Now, the best practice is uh, is still glyphosate, which is the, the weed killer, the active ingredient in most weed killers, the, the one that's getting so much bad press over the last couple of years. But that's what the, the licensed companies use to control it, and that is the way to control it. Now, they, they, they're quite specific with it in that they inject it into the stem at the right time of the year. Um, my advice to you, save tackling it yourself, is to get on to one of the licensed companies. Uh, there's one, I can't, it's a Kerry company. Uh, I, a, I don't want to give out the name in case it's the wrong name. It's, it's, it's I, you, I know, I know it's close to the right name, but I can't yeah, remember the correct if, name. If you Google but it's a Kerry it, it'll, company. Yeah, it'll come up if you, if you do a Google search for knotweed yes. removal. Yes. Yeah. We're not weed removing. And Kieran is this guy's name. He, he's done several projects for me over the years in in controlling it, and he's very good. He's, he's probably the best in the country at knowing what he's doing with it. Uh, so th- I, I'm afraid I'm not going to advise you to go at it yourself. Yeah. I would, would get, the get uh, somebody in. in. Absolutely, get yeah. the experts. Yeah. Get the experts in. Okay. Well, and... Apart from anything else, Trish. Apart from sorry again. Apart yeah. from anything else, that protects you. So if you're dealing with a licensed company on the control of it, they have a management program in place that protects you in case that spreads. Okay. 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 All right. Chris has been on his hydrangea got burnt due to frost. Can it can I cut it back? Yes, I would. Again, like we were talking about at the start of the program, that frost on hydrangeas is only going to be very uh, superficial damage, not no long term damage. Do cut it back now if you haven't cut it back yet this year. Yeah. Helen says, is it too cold to feed the grass? Uh, I have lawn gold ready to go, but I'm wondering with the weather, is it a little bit too cold? Also staying with the kind of chilly nights, tomato plants, is it too early to put them outside and other small plants? I would say definitely yes, too early for your tomato plants. And when you say other small plants, I'm going to take a guess and say that she's talking about the the kind of plants I mentioned at the start, your little seedlings of annuals and things like that are vegetables. I would say yes, too early because of the frost. If you do put them out, make sure you put some fleece over them in the evenings or maybe put them out for a few hours each day and take them in for the evenings, harden them off that way. In terms of feeding the grass with something like lawn gold, You'd normally say that we're okay in April to do it, but yeah, it does. The soil temperature, I think it needs to be 9, 10 degrees. I'm not certain if it is that. I would say we're probably okay, and if it's temporarily going down, I wouldn't be too worried. So I would say get the long gold on now, yeah. Mary Kilbehany has a rhododendron, 12 years old. No flowers towards the end of it. Can I plant new flowers underneath the existing rhododendron? So it's top-heavy with flowers. Okay, so okay, I understand. So it's gone top heavy, yes, and all the growth has gone to the top, and the flowers are up there. You you can grow plants underneath the rhododendron, uh, but it's going to be trial and error, Trish, because when you have like normally with the rhododendron like that, or every, any evergreen plant like that, like a camellia or anything, the the area directly underneath the crown of it really is probably going to be too shaded for anything to grow. So you can give it a go, is my answer, but. It will be trial and error. You you may or not be successful. 
Okay, Mary in Butterfront has planted one rhubarb plant. Obviously never done it before, so she's looking for advice on feeding it. And she's also wondering, should she have other plants or can you just grow one rhubarb plant? And what would you suggest feeding the solo rhubarb plant with? Well, yes, you can just grow one rhubarb plant. It's not okay. one of these that needs a male and a female or, or another one to pollinate. So you can grow one quite successfully all on its own. Um, they are, they do like to be well fed and they like a seaweed feed. So again, the nature safe Atlantic seaweed. The reason I keep going back to that one is because it's a very, very rich one. And the seaweed in it, well, number one, it's sustainably harvested, which is incredibly important, obviously. Um, of the Galway coast and it's cold pressed, which means it doesn't lose any of the nutrient value in it. Um, so go for the nature safe Atlantic seaweed. It's a very rich liquid seaweed feed. Uh, drench it with that and that will do it no end of good. Over the winter months, you could, or even now, but, but particularly over the winter months, you'd normally mulch it with something like a good quality farmyard manure seaweed from the beach if you can, um, a, a good quality farmyard manure or any well-rotted organic matter uh, just to improve the soil structure and the soil texture and the, the nutrient level around it. Uh, and really, once you have that and once you're feeding it, 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 it'll do fine for you. Mary in Canturk planted Portuguese laurel this time last year. So it's 12 months uh, planted. Should I feed it now? And if so, with what? Uh, yes, well, if it, if you think it needs it, and if it's in its first twelve months or just at the end of its first twelve months, it's still establishing. So I would feed it, and again, I'd go back to to the the seaweed feed, the the, the nature safe seaweed feed, the liquid seaweed, drench all the the, the hedge and that annuals. I actually did my own, not Portuguese laurel, but some some bay laurel there recently, and red robin with it, and you can nearly see it thanking me, and it's nearly growing in front of me. I know these these ones are in pots, um, but. Yeah, do give it a shot with that and it'll help the roots to establish. Actually, Nora was on to say, um, is it Seamongus, the fertiliser? She, uh, she yeah. has some, but she has it a long time. She's wondering, is it still okay to use? She does have it a long time because Seamongus isn't available, I don't think, in Ireland. <laughs> oh, wow, I'd say, maybe, dare I say, 12 years. Now, I might be wrong on that, but it's quite a while. It's an excellent product mixture of, um, of chicken manure and seaweed. Uh, I would imagine, I don't know is the short answer but I'd say if it's been in a sealed container for that length of time I would say yeah it's certainly worth using I would think it's probably okay Yeah no, you've nothing to lose if it, if it has gone nothing off I to don't lose. think it's going to do anything wrong um, Shane in North Cork well, Peter what would you recommend to plant on an earthen bank now to add a bit of colour as the daffodils are dying off also will increasing the humus content of the soil help with vegetable growth what are your thoughts please Absolutely. Increasing the humus content of the soil, which is basically just adding organic matter, Trish, is, is probably the most important things we can ever be doing in the garden in terms of plant feeding and that. Like we, we want, we rely on the soil to grow everything. And I don't want to go off on a tangent here and bore the pants off you, but the, 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 the magical energy, which we call soil, which covers the six inches of the planet is responsible for everything, everything we eat, our medicines, all the flowers, everything. So the more we can add to it in terms of organic matter and improving the humus content, the better all plants will do better edibles and ornamental. So definitely, definitely that that's what we should be doing. Um, in terms of after the daffodils, what to put in an earthen bank for color, it's it's kind of a bit of a vague question because you need to know more in terms of aspect and whether you want ground cover plants or just more bulbs to extend the season. So if it was more bulbs to extend the season, uh, I would look at earlier in the year, you could put in your snowdrops and crocus and then you'd have the daffodils. And then after the daffodils, you could have some tulips. And then as the tulips die off, you could put in some um, 
uh, alliums. So, so that you'd have colour that way from right from kind of end of December through to the end of June, just with flower bulbs. But if you're after ground cover plants, you could be you could be looking at things like Tony Asters, some of the herbaceous geraniums, like the cranes bills, like Roseanne is a particularly nice one. Um, but if it's just bulbs, as I say, maybe look at tulips and alliums to extend the season on a bit later. And James in Mallow has uh, a ro- has road frontage ditch. It's 150 feet in length and four foot wide. What's the best coverage I can get for it? Would it be seeds or plants? Something that'll spread fast, says James in Mallow. <laughs> That's, uh, again, another vague one, I'm afraid. Yeah. A difficult one to answer without seeing the situation because I, I was actually up beyond Mallow la- yesterday looking at a garden for somebody and the lovely stone ditch as well there. And... It's covered in ivy and covered in, in grass, like most ditches, you know, covered in, in wilderness. Um, if you try to grow something in that situation, you're going to be unsuccessful. You need to leave it to nature. But but, but the, the question here, you see, if I haven't, I haven't seen that ditch. So if there's nothing on it, if it's just bare soil, uh, seeds, a, a good mixture of native wildflower seeds would probably be the best thing of all to put in there because they'll, they'll germinate quickly, they'll establish quickly uh, and they're native so they're going to do well and of course you're then doing your bit for the pollinators yeah, and, the and for promoting biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'd probably go wildflower seeds, yeah. yeah. And then another listener says, is there a manure to put on lawn to kill moss that won't blacken the lawn? Have you ever heard of anything like that? Yeah, well, manure as such, but there's lots of things you can put. Like, so it's sulfate of iron is what black is what blackens the moss, and I'm not a fan of using sulfate of iron for moss, uh, as I, I've said on this before. And it's because yes, it does kill the moss, but it also makes the soil more acidic, which of course is the ideal conditions for moss to come back. So you you want to look at something that's going to to um to increase the pH of the soil and to make it more alkaline because that's the optimum pH for grass but moss can't tolerate it so it's a bit of a back to basics approach i had a chat actually i don't know if you saw trish on on the facebook ask the gardener session that i do last friday with uh, a fellow called david hedges gower he's he's chairman of the lawn association in the uk and he's kind of leading expert in lawn care this part of the world if you like he's a gardener's world presenter on lawn care and things like that uh, so i was chatting with him on facebook and if anybody's interested if you go on to my facebook page irish gardener it's it's last friday's ask the gardener episode and you'll see so i mean david is as i say probably the top and one of the one of the top in the world in terms of greenkeeping he gives great advice on on how to control moss and again he's going back to the importance of what's below the ground the soil as opposed to what we put on top of it That's so have so a look the irish gardener last week's ask the gardener with david Okay, and we finish with uh, love listening to Peter's advice. I have an orchid that has flowered on and off for the past three years and exactly what he was talking about. Very little care is needed. Uh, thanking you for your slot every week. Okay, that's where we wrap it up. And your, your Facebook, is it still one o'clock on a Friday? One o'clock on a Friday, yeah. And just get your questions in during the programme, yeah. Okay, theirishgardener.com. We'll speak to you next week. Thanks for that, Peter. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Peter Dowdle. That's where we leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing the programme. Mark Malone is in for Nick Richards for the afternoon. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock on to the line. Patricia Messenger, very good afternoon and stay safe. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.